Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn to our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're reading from verse 14 to verse 23, and if you're using one of the church Bibles, I think it's on page 957, that's if you're using a Bible this size, and if you are one of those blessed to have a large print Bible, it's on page 1138 or if you're an American, 1138. And as you're turning there, let me uh, just say it's a privilege to be at Trinity again, um, especially to be at the Trinity party, um, Christ's party, um, because some of you may sympathize with me. Um, I have no memory of ever having a birthday party. Um, And so... The blessings of the gospel have taken on a very special meaning to me. And Paul is beginning to speak in this section, actually, about the significance of this Lord's Supper. Uh, You'll notice the heading, if you've got the English Standard Version, is a warning against idolatry, which is his concern uh, from chapter 8 onwards. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I've often wondered in churches if the deacons or greeters at the door handed out little three-by-five cards with a question printed on the top. Uh, How surprised both the deacons and the elders might be by the differing answers they got to Uh, many different questions you might ask about the Lord's Supper. I want to consider one possible question with you today. 
Uh, imagine you'd been handed out a blank three by five card and at some point after the service you were to fill it in and answer this question, has coming to the Lord's Supper made any real difference to your Christian life? And imagine in many churches as the answers were gathered in, uh, there might be some wonderful answers, some surprising answers. Um, The elders would learn things about people in the congregation they simply didn't know as they, they opened in a way something fairly secret and private that had happened to them. But I actually suspect in many churches, if people were honest, which we aren't always in churches, alas, there might be a lot of answers saying, it hasn't made any difference to my Christian life. And I cannot remember the last time I actually thought about the Lord's Supper. I certainly haven't thought about it, and it hasn't made any difference to my life since the last time we had it, which in the old days might have been six months ago or a year ago. And Paul's concern here is he's dealing actually with the issue of compromise with the world is to say to these Christians, I want you to understand how the Lord's Supper is given to you to strengthen you, not just in the fellowship of the church, but to strengthen you in your faithfulness to Christ and your witness in the world. We're probably all much more familiar with what he says about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 because that passage is usually read every time we have the Lord's Supper. There, Paul is concerned about the fact that God's people in Corinth are sharing in the Lord's Supper in an entirely disorderly way. But what he's concerned about here in chapter 10 is that they are sharing in the Lord's Supper without it really making any difference to their lives. The older writers sometimes used to speak about the Lord's Supper as medicine. And Paul certainly in this passage sees the Lord's Supper as medicine. Or if you're of an older generation, you might think of it in terms of the doctor saying to you, because of your weakness, I think I need to prescribe a tonic for you. And you were given this, usually, if I remember rightly, brown bottle that was probably full of all kinds of vitamin and vegetable extracts that was meant to build you up, was meant to strengthen your immune system, to give you a new capability to live. And in a way, that's what Paul is doing here. At first sight, it may sound as though he's simply being critical of the Corinthians. And he certainly was profoundly concerned about the way in which they were beginning to live in a way that made them look like Corinthians rather than Christians. But what he's really doing here, pastorally, sensitively, but powerfully, is mixing a little tonic for them and saying, now take this. Take what you will find in the Lord's Supper. Because as you understand it, as you receive it, as you enjoy it, as 
it begins to nourish you, you should find that your Christian life, not just within the fellowship of the church, but tomorrow, on Monday, or Tuesday, it makes a real difference to your Christian life. So I want us to think about four particular things that Paul says in this passage that seem to me to be very specially helpful. They help us to understand the significance of the supper, and they enable us to be strengthened and nourished by the tonic that Christ gives us as we have this fellowship with Him at the Lord's table. First thing I want you to notice is that the way Paul underlines that in the Lord's Supper, we are offered the benediction of Jesus Christ. We're offered the benediction of Jesus Christ. And this he says, doesn't he, in verse 16. He says, I want you to flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people because this cup that you receive, this is the cup of blessing. It's actually the Greek word that literally means to speak well of, which is what the English word derived from the Latin means, to speak well of somebody. And he uses this language because this, of course, was the name of the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. At the end, when supper has come to a conclusion, he takes the final cup of the Passover meal, which was called the cup of blessing. And he gives it to his disciples with the broken bread. And he says, this is my blood, which is the blood of the new covenant. It's shed for the remission of sins. It's Jesus pronouncing his benediction upon his people. It's Jesus speaking well of his people. Or in the language that's to be used here, it is the cup of blessing. Blessing is one of the Bible's words that has lost almost its entire significance in our common English usage. Um, Today, if you hear somebody say, bless you, it's a kind of slightly spiritual equivalent of good luck to you. But when it's used in the Bible, it comes freighted with significance. I think sometimes the easiest way for us to grasp the the emotional power of that is to uh, remember what people used to say if somebody sneezed. They don't hear it so often in this country, but you do in other countries. You sneeze and somebody says, bless you. What do they mean? Do they mean, well, good luck to you? Um, Traditionally, that was the greeting that somebody gave, actually a prayer to God that somebody made when in the medieval days somebody sneezed for the simple reason that sneezing was one of the most obvious signs of the plague. You go onto the website, so you read the newspapers, and they'll tell you, here's, if you're doing this, you've probably got COVID. In the Middle Ages, if you're sneezing, then the great fear is that the plague has come upon you. That's where the nursery rhyme that girls, not boys, used to sing comes from. A ring, a ring of roses, take away the smell of the plague, 
a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. It's a very perverse thing to teach young girls because it should have a trigger warning about it. This nursery rhyme is about dying from the plague. And to say bless you was to pray that because this plague was seen as a curse from God, that God would alleviate the curse and actually turn it into blessing. And this helps us, I think, into the feeling of the Apostle Paul when he says, this cup that is being offered to you, this is the cup of blessing. This is the cup that tells you that Christ has taken the plague of your sin, that he's become sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember how he says in Galatians 3, you you foolish Galatians, Christ was placarded before you as crucified. Don't you realize that Christ has taken the curse in order that the blessing promised to Abraham might flow to us? And this is what it all means. He takes the cup of cursing. He gives to us the cup of blessing. The man or woman or young person who knows that Christ speaks well of them, that Christ blesses them, that they are blessed, is strengthened in the world. An elder in a church I served, great and godly old physician, and every time I greeted him on the Lord's Day morning as we went to an elder's prayer meeting, I would say, how are you, Joe? He always gave the same answer. Blessed. The man or woman or young person who knows he or she is blessed by Christ can live differently in this world. But then there's a second thing that I want us to see here. Not only at the supper does Christ offer his benediction to us, but at the supper we enjoy communion with Christ. See how he goes on to say this? This bread that we eat, is this bread not a participation in the body of Christ? And this cup that we drink, a participation in the blood of Christ? By participation is meant communion, fellowship. But it's put in very graphic terms, isn't it? It's not communion with the Spirit of Christ or communion with one another. It's very strong language. It's communion with the body and blood of Christ. By which Paul means the real Jesus, doesn't he? The flesh and blood Jesus. It's communion now by the Spirit with one and the same Jesus who invited sinners to parties, who touched lepers, who cared for the marginalized, who also welcomed and instructed the rich and challenged them. It's communion with the Jesus whose body was lacerated on the cross and whose blood was shed on the cross and with no other Jesus. 
And if, if this is strong language, it's not, it's not nearly as strong as the language you remember Jesus is recorded as using in John chapter 6 when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Obviously, he's not suggesting some kind of Christian cannibalism. He's using language the way it's used throughout the Bible and the way we still use it ourselves. As the psalmist says, I thirst for God. I hunger for God. I wouldn't be surprised that uh, there might be either a young lady or an older lady in this congregation who has had the experience of some young man so pursuing them that they've actually said to their friends privately but never to him, I feel as if he wants to devour me. And he has said to his friends, I can't get enough of her. And Paul is saying, this is our experience when we come to the Lord's table. It's communion with Jesus Christ in his body, in his broken body, and in his poured out flesh. He comes to satisfy us with himself. And he gives us all he is. And we want all he is and all he has. I've often wondered whether what the Lord says in Revelation 3.20 in his famous words is really a reference to the Lord's Supper. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So it's a benediction, but it's also wonderful communion. And then in the third place, in the central section in this passage, Paul also says that at the supper, not only benediction and communion, but at the supper we are called to consecration to Christ. That's the whole point he's making about you can't take the food that's been offered to idols and the food that's offered from the Lord's table. You can't drink the cup that's been dedicated to idols and drink the cup that comes to you from the Lord's table. And of course, he's, he's thinking into the world of Corinth. The world that was dominated by food and drink being, being dedicated to the gods in the temples, literally in the temples, or very commonly being dedicated to the gods in the household or dedicated to the gods in the, in the eating clubs of the ancient world or of the guilds that there were in the ancient world where the evening might begin with the offering of the food, the offering of the drink to one of the gods and then we can proceed with the meal. And it seems very far away. Um, but it's really very near, isn't it? Not least because if you look back to chapter 8 and read on here in chapter 10, Paul gives us 
pretty clear hints that there were, there were Christians in Corinth who were saying, and actually in the English Standard Version, the words are in inverted commas to help us to understand this isn't what Paul is saying, this is what the Corinthians are saying. Well, we know that there are no idols. We know they're just blocks of wood or pieces of stone. We know there's nothing there, so it's okay. And, I mean, Paul had no way of knowing, but he was putting his finger on a a challenge to consecration that would recur again and again in his own lifetime. And then later on, just say Caesar is Lord. That's all you need to do. Great stories of faithful Christians. Just say Caesar is Lord. You know he's not Lord. So it doesn't mean anything. So just say Caesar is Lord. Or in last century in, in Asia, just if you if you just offer the incense to the emperor, you know he doesn't reign. You know the Lord Jesus is king. Just do it. Or really up to date, if you were a rugby star in the Manly Sea Eagles or wherever last week, just wear the jersey. Doesn't say anything on it. It's just a rainbow. Just wear the jersey. Staggeringly, seven of them say, it's against our convictions to give publicity to this style of life with its rainbow on it. I thought it was interesting in the report I read that the the coach or the manager apologized to the community out there he believed were offended, but all he did for his players was to defend them. No word about apologizing to them. No need to apologize to some of them who were probably Christian believers. But it's just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. And you see, this is exactly where the Apostle Paul is saying to them, friends, eventually you become what you eat. I have a friend who quite often says, as she holds a cake, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. You become what you eat. And you do. Because you become, there are pressures that will produce a kind of addiction to that style of behavior. It doesn't really matter. There isn't an idol. I know that. The emperor isn't the emperor of the universe. I know that. It's just a picture of a rainbow. I know that. But I have an allegiance to Jesus Christ that I am not willing to compromise with the ethos, the pressures, the lifestyle of the world. A friend who was telling me that he was invited to the high table at Sydney, Sussex, College in Cambridge. Now, you may know nothing about Cambridge University, nothing about the Sydney Sussex College, but you probably know the name of its most famous graduate, Oliver Cromwell. And he told me 
as they made the loyal toast to Her Majesty, they drew the covers over the portrait of Oliver Cromwell that was in the dining room. And once they'd toasted Her Majesty, I don't know if they knew at that high table that if it weren't for Oliver Cromwell, Her Majesty probably wouldn't now be Her Majesty, but you can see the point. He was a Republican. He was instrumental in the execution of Charles I. We know all that. We just cover over the portrait. And when he said it to me, I thought, you know, what a temptation there is to do that as a Christian. Just to briefly cover over the portrait and share in the ways of the world. But friends, Jesus Christ is not just a portrait. He's our Savior and He's our Lord. And it will inevitably happen that once we begin to cover over the portrait, we will do it more and more often and in more and more significant ways. And Paul is saying to us here then, look what you're being given here. Christ who gave everything for you, who embraces you to himself and gives you every spiritual blessing that he has. You have everything in him, everything you need, and especially everything you need not only just now, but for all eternity. And what is this food? What is this drink by comparison? But we're so weak, aren't we? And sometimes when we, when we, when we eat and drink, when we taste, um, we, we do begin to become like the people with whom we eat and drink. And what we eat and drink in that sense begins to shape us. I have a long-time friend who had a, a very, very painful surgery And the aftermath of it was fairly horrific. And I think as a result, he became addicted to prescription drugs and found ways bypassing the physicians of getting them. And he he was a minister. And he was visiting someone, I think, in a rehabilitation clinic when one of the physicians fell into conversation with him, asked him, you know, the usual question, you know, who are you? What do you do? He he said, I'm a minister. The physician, obviously, whose specialty was in this area of rehabilitation of drug addicts, said to him, who's your God? And he instinctively gave him the Christian answer. And the physician said to him, He's not your God. Drugs are your God. What a moment. And I can't, I can't think of that happening to my friend without thinking of the great physician saying to me, who is your Lord? And my instinctive response is to say, Jesus is my Lord. But what if he sees into my heart and sees that addictive compromise. And here is his tonic. Here is his medicine. The supper of the Lord. That we take in. It's 
It's a physical action that expresses a spiritual reality. Lord Jesus, I'm taking you in. I'm taking all of you in. Body and soul, blood and flesh, you are all mine and I am all yours. And that, of course, leads to the final thing, which is quite simply at the Lord's Supper, we taste the devotion of Christ to us. So the Lord's Supper is His benediction to us. It's our communion with Him. It's our consecration to Him. But it's also the great expression, visible expression. It is the physical form of the words that are spoken to us in Scripture of His devotion to us. And this comes out in what Paul says here, perhaps in a rather curious way, because what he says here in verse 22 is a little odd, isn't it? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What has prompted that sudden thought of jealousy in his mind? Well, it's the love of Jesus for us. And I think he's saying to these Corinthians, as, as David read to us early on from Romans 5.8, these are the signs that God has proved his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, says Jesus. They must have understood what he was talking about. This is what is spread before us. I love you so much I died for you. I so much want you for my Father that I died to bring you the forgiveness of sins and also to bring to you the Holy Spirit to empower you both to know that He is your Father and to live for Him as your Father. My devotion to you is absolutely complete. And I think that maybe what Paul is saying here is, dear friends in Corinth, yield to that devotion because the alternative may be that you discover his, the fierceness of his love, his jealousy to have you completely for God's glory and for your good. But as he hints later on, he will find ways of removing these idols from you. It's as though he's saying, if we don't sing the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee, then the Lord Jesus loves us so much, he's prepared to tear it from our throne. And it's almost as though he's saying, you do not want to experience the fierceness of that love. Although you would in the future look back and say, thank God that his love was so, so very fierce. Because what these emblems mean is, Jesus Christ brooks no rivals in the lives of his people. And when, therefore, we yield to him, we discover at last that he is all in all.
You cannot hold on to your idols, says Paul, and at the same time hold on fully to Jesus Christ. So come. Come in a sense that as you stretch out your hands for the bread and the wine, dropping from them and from your life is every idolatry, every compromise, every second route that you are taking in your life. And Christ is becoming all in all. He does stand at the door and knock. And if any of us open the door, He will come in and He will sup with us and we with Him. And we will taste in private and secret and wonderful ways how much He loves us and how much we love Him.